where great ideas flow together. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, the podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. I'm Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. Libby has an incredibly big heart. She cares about her students in all aspects of their life, and I, I really admire that. I'd love to cultivate a, a lab family like that someday for myself. Libby has a unique way of kind of seeing where her students are, where they need to go. On top of it all, she's really fun, you know, and if it's not fun, it's not really worth doing, and she'd be the first one to say that. You just heard the voices of Ada Smith and Shell Terwilliger, graduate students in UM's program in natural resource conservation, talking about our guest on this week's episode, Dr. Elizabeth Metcalf, whom we all call Libby. We're delighted to share our conversation with Libby, who is the Joel Meyer Distinguished Professor of Wildland Management and faculty in the programs in Society and Conservation and Wildlife Biology. She was also recently named Senior Associate Dean for Undergraduate Affairs for the Frankie College of Forestry and Conservation and has made a big impact on the University of Montana in a number of areas since joining us at UM in 2010. Every episode, we ask our guests to read a poem or a short passage from literature about rivers. Libby loves Jane Austen, the towering figure of the early 19th century novel, so we've asked her to read a landscape description from Emma. But listeners will also get to hear us discuss a passage from Pride and Prejudice, which helps us launch our conversation about her research interests in the social values people attribute to landscape and the emergence of leisure and travel as anchors of modern ideas about the good life. Listeners will hear her Montana story as well as her thoughts on graduate education, including the important role she plays as a mentor to female graduate students. Welcome to Confluence, where conversations follow the close and handsome curve of the river. This passage is from Jane Austen's Emma. It was a sweet view, sweet to the eye and the mind. English verdure, English culture, English comfort, seen under a sun bright without being oppressive. Leading to a view at the end over a low stone wall with high pillars, which seemed intended in their erection to give the appearance of an approach to the house, which had never been there. Disputable, however, as might be the taste of such termination, it was in itself a charming walk, and the view which closed it extremely pretty. The considerable slope at nearly the foot of which the abbey stood gradually acquired a steeper form beyond its grounds, and at half a mile distant was a bank of considerable abruptness and grandeur, well clothed with wood, and at the bottom of this bank, favorably placed and sheltered, rose the abbey mill farm, with meadows in front, and the river making a close and handsome curve around it. Welcome to Confluence, Libby. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm super excited you chose the Jane Austen passage. She's incredible, right? An amazing novelist. You know, not exactly of the taste today, so that says <laughs> something that you're interested in it. And I've wasted this passage from Emma on you 
because it has the river there at the end, and, and we talk about rivers here. But the two are related in that they're, they're kind of quintessential examples of this 19th century obsession in, in British culture with landscape, which I think we should talk about in the picturesque. And she's, you know, pretty restrained normally, Jane Austen. There's not a lot of nature. She's talking mostly about human psychology and, and relationships. And so it's kind of neat to think about her a little bit like a, a landscape writer, which, you know, wasn't her main thing. But there's this way in which her experience of that landscape at Pemberley plays this role in her conversion to Darcy. And so that got me thinking in a different way about that novel in terms of landscape and and the connection to place. Um, so would you mind kind of reading that passage and then talk, talk about why you chose it? This is a passage from Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Oh, my dear, dear aunt, she rapturously cried, what delight, what felicity, you give me fresh life and vigor. Adieu to disappointment and spleen. What are young men to rocks and mountains? Oh, what hours of transport we shall spend. And when we do return, it shall not be like our other travelers, without being able to give one accurate idea of anything. We will know where we had gone. We will recollect what we had seen. Lakes, mountains, and rivers shall not be jumbled together in our imaginations. Nor when we attempt to describe any particular scene, Will we begin quarreling about its relative situation? I chose it because I think it does a really good job of kind of summarizing the things that I think about every day, which is how people travel, how people connect with the landscape. And it's done in a place that I think is just beautiful. Um, I've never been to England, just full disclosure. If you talk to- Well, well that's interesting. So you, you say it's beautiful, but you, it's like yes. beautiful in your literary imagination <laughs> exactly. rather than in reality. That's interesting. All I want to do is go on hikes across the English countryside. Um, so any, I'm always taking- In Victorian dress or- oh, Yes, I mean, any dress really. Um, my husband thinks this is um, maybe not the most optimal vacation for us, <laughs> but it is a dream that I have. And just, you know, the idea of the landscape was so much part of how that moment in time was connected with people, was connected with what they did in their free time. It also happens to coincide with kind of this the rise of kind of leisure in society. And so if you know anything about me, I study parks, tourism, and recreation management. And so we can talk about the leisure class. And there was some really exceptional um, literature and science that came out around the leisure class. And so I've had this fascination with how people spend their free time. And when they're spending their free time outdoors, what does that look like? And yeah. so it, I think uh, Jane Austen paints the picture of how that leisure class was kind of idling around outside. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's such rich content in everything you just said. So let's unpack a little bit of that. One being the passage in particular, she's excited to go on a, a voyage to leave behind things that, you know, are vexing her. So there's that psychological dimension. But then you're adding this class dimension, which is the leisure class. The people who are able to make that kind of trek in early 19th century England are, of course, wealthy. But they're in this particular, this group is in this particular middle class zone where they're not traditional aristocratic families, but they've made their money more recently. Some of them made that money off of the rising industrial economy. And and so as, as I've been thinking about this back and forth in your work in, in leisure and tourism, it's the rise of leisure tourism. It's the rise of travel on the continent where the English families will kind of do a tour of the continent. But it's also the rise of industrialization, which is ruining some of these exact landscapes, right? So that same motif is showing up in Wordsworth, his 
uh, poems about the River Wye and, and the, the cataract view of a waterfall being destroyed by industrialization in the background. So there's, there's a kind of an interesting tension there between the desire to kind of be outdoors in these picturesque spots, but then the, the push away is pushing away from this rising industrial world. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I like that kind of that tension that you just described. You know, during these times, we saw the fight for uh, free time with the industrial workers. We saw an advocacy for human rights and workers' rights. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, when I think about recreation, when I think about leisure and I think about Jane Austen and how she describes it, they're, they all kind of mix together for me. Um, and it to me, it's one of these first kind of modern stakes in the ground that we de- we deserve and we demand time for ourselves and time to experience these outdoor places. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit more about leisure because that's what a, a pregnant concept I mean, historically. Uh, you know, I was trained as a classicist, and um, so we always do etymology. The Latin word for leisure is otium, O-T-I-U-M, and its opposite is negotium. That's the word that gives us negotiation. And so there's this in Roman thinking about leisure. It's the thing that people who have wealth and can afford not to be in negotiating business world uh, get to have. But then Roman writers are always talking also about how leisure is um, a corrupting influence that that Catullus, the great Roman poet, will talk about how Odium is destroying him because in his downtime, when he's not busy, all he does is think about his terrible personal life and how it's going astray, <laughs> right? So do some of those tensions play out in kind of the way people think about leisure in the more modern world, about kind of moralizing problems around leisure and downtime? Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's like... Um, we need enough leisure time, but not too much leisure time. Right. Um, I think about your like your children, right? Like, how much downtime do you really need, and what kind of trouble we right. get right. into? Well, <laughs> COVID has put that really right in front and center. <laughs> and so there is a, a tension there. And then you know, there's there are folks who turn towards kind of more deviant forms of leisure, whether that be things like gambling, um, drug use. And so there are some tensions there around you know how much free time is too much free time. Right. Um, but the for me, the the basic principle is that we we as a society we deserve our free time and we deserve to figure out the right and healthiest ways to get outside. And I orient all my research towards outdoor outdoor spaces. Yeah. Other leisure theorists across the, the nation don't. They might be thinking about more built environments, but for me, I think it really starts with spending time outdoors. Yeah. So so yeah, let's pivot to that. I mean, how did you kind of come into that? interest in that that sort of research interest? Where does it come from in your background and how has it evolved for you? Oh, wow. Ashby, this is like, we're going to go down like the road. That's what we're here for. That's what we do on Confluence. We go down the road. The river. The river, really. (laughs) Well, it started on a river. We're going upstream, I guess. Yeah. You know, when I was in, in high school and my my mother and father really wanted me to spend my free time productively. Well, see, now that's another one though, right? Productive free time. Isn't that a I contradiction know. in terms? I know. Well, I was like, and I was programmed. My mom put me in like, uh, we had a youth agency and she put me in all the outdoor programs. And so, and it, my parents do not like the outdoors. I mean, they like appreciate it. They come out to Montana, but they're not hikers. Um, and so there's this whole theory that like, uh, if you if your parents do something outdoors, you're more likely to do it outdoors. I didn't have that, and so but I was in these after school programs where we went caving and hiking and we did rock climbing, and I just fell in love with it. 
And through college, I just continued to backpack. I went to a, a small state school in New Haven, so it was pretty urban. And I found a niche of friends in, in my major that we all endure, enjoyed going outside. And so I started working with wilderness programs and just working with uh, adjudicated youth and bringing them outdoors. And I, that love just developed and grew. And I of course, at the time, you would have seen that as lifestyle. You wouldn't have necessarily seen it as a thing to study, right? But that starts to emerge probably for you. I mean, I think so many professors, one of the things we do on on this podcast is talk about the professor's life and how it unfolds. And so many professors, I mean, just to be reductive about it, they find the thing that they love and they make a career out yeah. of it. They figure out, you know, so in my case, I'd be reading books, right? And, you know, who wouldn't want to read books for a living? It sounds amazing, right? So you kind of have that naive first sense that if I could just keep doing this, wouldn't that be great? Did you have something like that? And, and, and I mean, it took you to West Virginia eventually. Yeah, I, I definitely had that. I like, I was like, I like being outdoors. I want to do that forever. And I, my other undergrad degree was in communications. And so I really like people. And so if I can mix people in the outdoors... That's perfect combo. It was. And so I thought for certain that I wanted to be an interpretive ranger. I wanted to work for the Park Service. And I was looking at grad programs in West Virginia University, had a, uh, a professor who was working on interpretation. And so I went to go study with him. He still remains a close colleague of mine. Um, but I abandoned him really quickly when I got to WVU and worked with another major faculty member. And on work related to the national forests and how visitors experience national forests. And I just fell in love with uh, research and collecting data and working outdoors. Did you have kind of a, I don't know, you know, epiphany about research on a particular project that where you, you turn and saw research as the angle as opposed to, I mean, you know, in, interpretive park ranger would have some research components in it, but it wouldn't be like the central drive. So did you have a kind of research epiphany? Yeah, I did. I was, uh, my very first winter, I was at Diamond Lake, Oregon, we were collecting data on the intersection of cross-country skiing and snowmobiling, and it was a conflict study. And, uh, yeah, and they, <laughs> I would say so. Was, I went there with a, actually my major professor from Penn State University. Um, it was the first time I met him. I got on this plane with him, and we went to Oregon to collect data. And we spent, you know, five or six days in like three feet of snow interviewing people about their experiences with recreation conflict up at Diamond Lake. And it was, it was amazing. I loved being, um, talking with people about their recreation experiences. I liked learning how to take the, the data we were collecting and translating that into findings and analysis. And it was just a different kind of approach to what I had been used to. Yeah. So that's, you, in terms of your journey, you had decided somewhere between, you know, at Western Virginia, eh, maybe the park ranger thing is a thing. I want to do further graduate school. So that led you to Penn State, this PhD program. That That's so interesting that, you know, I grew up in the West, but it was Texas. Before I moved to Montana, I didn't realize, I had never encountered the cultural divide around the outdoors like you encounter here. Um, and it's coded. You know, so the one you just described is heavily coded between motorized and non-motorized, right? I mean, I started seeing the resonance in that early study that you did. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's uh, recreation. It's funny because I don't really study recreation conflict anymore, but um, I teach it in my classes. And so we just went over this section and it's essentially um, goal interference uh, attributed to another person. And I always tell my students, you d recreation conflict isn't about like throwing punches on the trail. That's not what it, it is. It's a it more it tends to be a social values differentiation. What you are doing on the landscape, I just fundamentally don't agree with. Um, and that's where we see those tensions, those value structures are uh, against each other. You know, as a skier, you're a skier too. You know, I was out uh, at Lolo Peak on Sunday with my son. We climbed it. And on our way at Lolo, we stopped to get gas and there's two guys in a snowmobile. <laughs> and I went over and had a 15 minute talk with them about snow conditions. It was awesome. Yeah. You know, they, they gave me a report from the high country, you know. So I think there are, are places where people can find that commonality, right? That, that you know, I, I don't have to see their use of that space as an invasion of my space, even though I'm doing it differently. That's exactly right. And I think one of my kind of basic premises and fundamental um, values that I have in all my classes and in the research I do is that everyone should have access to the outdoors, regardless of your mode, regardless of your abilities. And so there are commonalities and there's, there's ways to actually reduce conflict. It's simply at trailheads. It's actually keeping people away from each other. Right, um, right, right. Separate entrances. That's right. And you see that. Like in the Bob Marshall, the yes. horses come up one side of the lake. Yes. You know, the hikers on the other side. That's exactly right. And that's literally one of the best management tools we have is just like separate um, and then let them, you know, join up in the recreation areas. We also know that there's like kind of 10% on either side of each uh, group that maybe might cause more problems for others. And so we traditionally see that with motorized recreation. There's a few bad apples that might ruin it for everybody else. And yeah. so I try to temper against that. It's not that all motorized recreation is bad. There might be a few bad apples in there. Yeah. So we're in this just because it's fun to talk about, but it isn't your primary research area anymore. So you, you kind of, you did your PhD there at, at um, Penn State. What's your Montana story? How'd you end up here? I'm, aside from it being an incredible place to live, I'm sure that's part of the story. But yeah, how did that work out for you? How did you end up here? Yeah, I was um, a faculty member in the college was visiting Penn State. And I remember it very distinctly. I was sitting in this really cool bar at Penn State called Zeno's. And it's downstairs and it's like kind of all stone inside and super like almost like a little grotto. And Zeno's, as in the famous Greek philosopher. I think so. The, the arrow that never reaches a target because it's 50% reduction. The, what a great bar. I know. Right? Uh, can, when you drink there, do you never get drunk because yeah. you're 50% less impact on your inebriation? Uh, right. what, a, what a great bar. <laughs> so you're down in Zeno's. Yeah. That's, what, a, what a scene. This is awesome. I know. And, I, and, and his name was Bill Borey. Some of you might know him. Sure. He went back to Australia and he just sat next to me and I remember talking to him and he said, would you apply for a job at University of Montana? And I said, well, well, Bill, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think I so, yeah. <laughs> and he, when the announcement came out, he sent it to me and I immediately applied. And it's uh, kind of a wild story because there was one other person who was granted an on-campus interview and it happened to be my best friend. I know. And he's a fantastic uh, professor at Utah State. and um, So it worked out for him. It did work out Might for not him. have, but it did. It did. And he's so – he's like one of the nicest and kindest humans. And so um, – but, yeah, I interviewed, and it was a, actually a teaching position. I hadn't finished my PhD. I had was writing my dissertation, and I remember asking my major advisor if I should apply for the job. And he says, well, yeah, Libby, uh, I don't have any more funding for you. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. yeah. 
So I got the job and I haven't looked back. So, so from that teaching position, when you were done, you're able to kind of roll that into a tenure track position, and and then here you are. And since you've been here, I mean, what what has how has that shaped? I mean, so you know, describing West Virginia, maybe I'm not maybe. I mean, West Virginia is a big outdoor recreation area. There are a lot of places in Pennsylvania where that's the case as well. But compared to Montana, with the landscape is large, and this is such a huge part of our lifestyle, that must have impacted your research and the kinds of questions and, and issues that you were going to address. Yeah. It's- a, that's a great question because I learned I learned really quickly that to study recreation in an isolated uh, way was not viable. All in Montana, everything is connected. So recreation is connected to the uh, ecological and biological resources around us. It's connected to the small and rural communities that are in Montana. It's connected to issues around what I study on the Clark Fork River, around legacy mining and uh, Superfund, and so it. I just learned that my kind of view and lens was too small and I needed to expand how I, I thought about issues and thought about recreation within those issues. Yeah, and, and I mean, one more I'll add to your list, I guess, which is, which is again, new for me to think about is, um, you know, the way in which the forestry industry reshaped this landscape so much and you can kind of view that through the negative lens of, of the, you know, forestry practices, you know, that may have be contributing to larger fires. But they also built all these roads, and these roads are – we're using them every day for our recreation. I mean, I'm riding my bike on them literally every, almost every day in the summer. So there's that, you know, there's that paradox where, you know – and I remember, you know, it's been a while since we've had a flare-up around roadless rules, but the roadless rules debates get pretty heated around here about who you built them, who gets access to them. Yeah, yeah, it's so connected. There's yeah, forestry industry is a great example. Like you can't talk about forestry and not talk about recreation, and vice versa. Um, those things are intimately tied. Whether it be roads, whether it be just view sheds, whether it be the places that Montanans love to recreate at, and what the condition of those places are. Have they been restored? Is there fire that's come through them? Um, so they're all connected. Yeah. What do you think when you sort of look at your career so far and kind of where you are going ahead? What do, what do you see right now as having been your biggest contribution? Oh, God. You asked me this question uh, ahead of time, and I think I had a really bad example. <laughs> it's such a funny – it's so hard to reflect on your career and say, what are my big contributions? Yeah. And I, or, or what are you proudest of? You know, yeah. It wouldn't even necessarily have to be impact, but what are you proudest of in terms of like what you think you did, what you accomplished in it? Yeah. I When I think about what I'm doing around recreation right now, it's, it's, the, it's what I love. I'm working – I'm currently working with two small communities, Columbia Falls and White Sulphur Springs on how they become a more resilient recreation landscape. How do they plan for recreation for the future? And it, it pairs together the things I love, which is working with rural communities, working with people, and helping them uh, reconceptualize themselves for a better future. And it's just, it's fulfilling work, it's impactful work, and it helps them stay connected and get the resources they need to plan. How, so tell me a, a more about how something like that unfolds. Like, you know, do, do they reach out to you? You reach out to them? What's the point of contact? What's the kind of entity that you're dealing with? Yeah, so this is some work I'm doing with the Forest Service and a group in, um, in, ta- or in Whitefish called Montana Access Project. And we were sitting around maybe four years ago, and we said, we need to help communities plan for recreation. And so we worked with the Forest Service to get an initial small grant. And we've been using that small grant, and we reached out using our contacts to 
a couple key communities just to see if they'd be interested in some planning. And we developed a kind of a planning structure for them. And it involves uh, getting a core group of community members together, thinking about uh, all the documentation they already have in their communities, and then pulling all of these things together in a kind of a multi-month process to help them develop a recreation plan at the end. Our hope is that they take these plans and they go after land and water conservation funds. We hope that they apply for grants with the EPA. We hope that they're applying for all sorts of funding sources from private agencies to help them realize their outdoor recreation potential. So you're kind of giving them a, a process to go through to kind of come at, uh, c- come out with a um, yeah a model for themselves or what they what they want to see, and then you know enable them to go off and actually do the work themselves. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. It's not the um, If I were to be, uh, it's not the work that is the most theoretically interesting that I do. Um, It's not like the the kind of ivory tower (laughs) academic work. No, it's the roll up your sleeves and get something done type. That's right. Yeah, and I I like the way you put that in terms of you can see it work. You can see it work out over over an immediate timeline. Um, Um, You know that that kind of impact, I guess, is uh, satisfying. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and so you know a key part of our show is is thinking about and thinking with faculty members about, you know, their ideas about their own experience within their fields and how that contributes to the way they mentor, especially, you know, their graduate students, because that's our, our lane, right? Now, you've recently been um, put in a different position administratively, which, which I want to hear you talk about a little bit. Um, but at the same time, um, I'm really interested to hear, you know, you, you've talked about kind of some of the struggles you've had as a woman in your field and the difficulty navig- navigating that. And, and for listeners of Confluence, you know, um, Jackie Moore's episode about a month ago, she talked quite a bit about this as well in, in, the, in, in the business environment, sort of some of the obstacles she ran into as a woman. Could you talk a little bit about that and sort of how you overcome them and how they have impacted your work? Well, I appreciate that you've spoken to Jackie because she is my giant and she's the person I I have always cherished as a mentor and she has taught me a lot of what I know. Yeah. <laughs> um and so it's good to to get that kind of validation. It's it's it it was hard it's hard, right? At every moment you doubt whether you're pushing hard enough or pushing too much. Uh perfect examples are, you know, we know uh, there's a lot of literature around women just negotiating poorly for their own positions. And so thinking a little bit about my past negotiations for myself, knowing that I left stuff on the table. Mm. Um, and I know that. Like yeah. I know when I my first uh, negotiation point at the University of Montana, I didn't get what I could have probably got. Didn't even know maybe what to ask. Couldn't even, yeah, didn't even yeah. know. And um, and so, Jen, I mean, for, for, our, for our listeners who are, you know, Graduate students, it's an important point, right? That you need mentors around you to give you some context for what you, because again, you kind of end up, you're, you go into the academic job market, especially, you're kind of on your own. And you need people to kind of even just frame what you should be asking for and what you should be, you know, seeing as your optimum outcome. Yeah. And I remember just thinking, oh, they're not going to like me or they're going to um, think I'm too pushy or too something if I ask for everything I need. And that's just not the case. Now sitting on the other side of it, uh, new faculty are asking for resources. The question that we say in our college is, do we have it? And can we give that, those resources to those people? Yeah. And and so I think it's academia has also changed. Even in the 12 years that I've been here, we've changed quite dramatically here at the university, which is really good to see. Yeah. What would you say that biggest change is? 
Um, I think there's just a more of an awareness from our leadership uh, all the way down through our deans and, and through our faculty that we need to be giving people the fairest chance to succeed here. Yeah. And I think some of what you're talking about, um, you know, the corollary part of it, I guess, let's say, is the family context, just how hard it is to and it has historically has been uh, to raise a family as a professor. I mean, it's just an incredibly draining and demanding job. You, it's, it's not the kind of job people take. Um, it's not a nine to five job, right? I mean, it's just not like that. You, your passion, we were talking earlier about finding your passion and exploring it, but the, the, the downside of that, I guess, is that people do throw themselves so fully into their academic lives. And it's kind of hard to, to find that work-life balance sometimes. Oh yeah. I think it's like a total myth. I, I like, I, I don't even like the word balance. There is no balance. It's yeah. just like trade-offs, right? Right. And um, what are the right trade-offs, yeah. right? Rather than you know somehow there being a perfect yeah yeah it's this is the craziest thing. I remember sitting with my promotion and tenure committee. I don't know, I was three years into my academic job and saying to them, "I think I want to have a baby. Do you think this is a good idea?" Which is a total batshit way to think about family <laughs> planning, right? Like I'm talking not the right <laughs> yeah not the right approach yeah. yeah. So I remember the PYTPNT committee, amazing as they are, saying to me, Livy, why are you talking to us about this? Of course you should have a kid. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. want a kid, have one. And so I always joke, I birthed a kid and was promoted to associate, and then I birthed another kid and had tenure. Uh-huh. And so it was not easy, but... I, you know, I think... I don't think there's a third kid for the Regents professor. No. Just so you know, I don't think that's necessarily the you know, best Ashby, plan. You that ship has sailed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, you know... That's amazing, though. Those are, those are um, you know, there's there's a kind of funny, um, you know, cliche about if you have a bunch of events happening at once, it's better to cluster them because no one of them will cause you as much stress than yeah. they would stretch, stretched out. But I mean, those are two benchmark events in your life. I mean, obviously, yeah. child being a thousand times more important than your promotion. But, you know, the fact that they happen together is kind of interesting. It gives you a life pattern that's got this intense uh, structure to it. Yeah, it, it really does. And, you know, thinking, I just I just went up for full and I, I was awarded full professor. Congratulations. Thank you. And I, I had to actually, as part of that, was a maternity leave. And I was reflecting on that, my promotion materials. I'm like, oh, I had a maternity leave in there and I had COVID in there. And oh my gosh, this is like just a bonkers uh, portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but you know, you did it right. I mean, you know, looking back, you can have this incredible pride and having, you know, accomplished it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's so good that you're articulating this too, within the context of the work you do, which is so grounded in value too. It's like, you know, in other words, we all have a right to leisure. We all have a right to family. We should have a right to to having a, a, a you know, again, not necessarily a balanced life, but a, a life that, that has components, facets to it that allow us to explore our full human life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The Academy's not always super friendly to that. No. Yeah. And so that's something we, we as a, you know, collective need to do better. And part of the message for the podcast is also about what are those tools of resilience. And so when you think about the way you mentor your graduate students, how do you convey that? What do you, what do you do to kind of set your graduate students up for not just successful research careers, but life? Yeah. We talk a lot about it. I I have a cadre of um, female PhD students and they are all juggling a lot of different things in their lives. And so we talk a lot about that juggle. And we talk a lot about, um, you know, 
we try to we try to encourage each other and boost each other's self-esteem in our our individual meetings. Um, I'm a big proponent that sometimes you need to you need to cry a little bit. And my, my role is you cry in my office. We never cry out there. Um, and uh, and so just uh, you know giving all of my students and any other any any other woman that or male that comes into my office um, just the 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 tips and tools I have learned along the way. Here's what you can negotiate for. Here's what you might not want to negotiate for. Here's, I often get the question, when do I know when it's the right time to have a child? And I say the same thing. There's never a right time. I said, but there are some better times. You might not want to do it in in your first two years of a tenure-track job, but after year three, you should know. Um, And so there's just some kind of little tips and tricks that I try to offer to my students, and it seems to help. And how how does this relate to kind of your broader... um you know, philosophy, let's say, of mentoring graduate students. I mean, what are you trying to, you know, when you, when you, of course, are getting applications, how are you vetting? What are you looking for in those students when they apply? And then how are you cultivating what you find? Yeah, I'm less uh, worried about their research experience. I want, I'm looking for students who have uh, certain basic skills. Uh, Writing is one of them. I'm not going to teach students how to write. Makes my heart go pitter-patter to hear that. You're not going to teach them how to write, but not every uh, professor cares <laughs> that they can write, right? And I, I just I just don't have those skills. And I love the Writing Center for those skills. And yeah. so I hope that they come up with basic writing skills. I'm also looking for them to have uh, demonstrated that they worked hard on something. And that comes out in a lot of different ways. It could be experience on in a job. It could be through different things they did through their undergraduate or grad, uh, you know, master's experiences. Um, and so that work hard paired with writing are kind of some of those, those two basics. And of course, a love and a passion for the things that I study. Yeah. If they're not interested in really the things I'm interested in, it's, it's hard to kind of make that fit. Yeah. And so they need to have some basic understanding of what my, my research is and my expertise, because I can't be a, an advisor to all people. I, you know, you need to have some kind of complementary-ness with me. Yeah, and I, um, I, I wanted to get in a little bit about that work hard thing because the way you're putting it is really interesting. Um, you often hear it said as work ethic, but what you're saying is like something slightly different, which is you can see in the record where someone has thrown themselves into something. Is that you're kind of looking for someone who's kind of immersed themselves in in difficult work? Because of course, that's part of our world. There's a lot of failure in our world, right? I mean, in the in the world of academia, there's just as much failure as, as success. And so you have to have an ethic that allows you to kind of push through that a little bit. Absolutely. You need that grit, right? Like you need to be able to demonstrate. And I don't care if that grit comes in a job where you're working in, you know, um, manual labor or right. a job that's, you know, you're working in an office in a difficult situation. I don't even care where it comes from. But, and it's kind of an intang, it's intangible, but tangible at the same time. So it's, you don't really know what you're looking for, yeah. but you can kind of see evidence of it in CVs and resumes. Well, and you know, I've done quite a few of these faculty interviews and I mean, very few people are going to say, I look for high GPA or I look for great test scores. It's funny, you know, like, like they either take that for granted or they say, actually, we don't think that tracks as well as these other things, whatever those other things are. So, you know, you pointed to skills. I mean, you want to see that people have had whatever it is that they studied as undergrads or wherever they went in the world, that they've grown in a skill, that they know how to learn, right? That, that in a sense, that's the most important attribute is this ability to learn and grow and to take on a tough challenge and not be knocked down by it. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, 
I don't know if it was well said, but <laughs> I'm just trying to pull, <laughs> pull out from what you've said. I mean, I, I think that's really a cool lens to look at your graduate student placement. Like, what are you looking for? And it is a relationship, right? It's, you're, you know, grad students, it's slightly different than your undergraduate students in terms of how you work with them. And, and so that relationship has to be strong. Absolutely. I, yeah, we, I try to interview all of my grad students in person if I can. Zoom has made that. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. But has Zoom not, has it felt like a good lens? Like, you know, you didn't need to have them physically here. Yeah. I haven't actually had to recruit a, a grad student with Zoom. I've okay. had, I brought on all my students kind of pre-COVID and they're, and a lot of them are PhD. And so we're in it for the long haul. Right, right. So my like dance card is full. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny, PhD students are different. I mean, that's one of the things we've noticed in the grad school that um, you get these cohorts, you'll see certain programs, they'll, they'll, you can see the students work through the cohort, they all graduate, and for a couple of years, no one's finishing a PhD because they're, you're building back this other cohort. And so you've got a cohort that are in their sort of second, third year. Yeah, we've, we talked to um, Ada and Shell, uh, recent PEO winners, um, of course, who were just nothing but praise for you and helping support them in that uh, application. But that's a great kudo to get. Oh, my gosh. I cannot even believe it. Those two women, they are just exceptional. I, I did not expect one of them to get it, but I will tell you what, they are both so deserving of it. They work their tails off yeah. um, on their research, on everything, and they're just, they're just present. They're yeah. always present, and it just feels so good to have them in the lab. Yeah. So this job, this new job, you've been working uh, across campus. You, know, you and I have known each other for a while. We've kind of intersected around um, DHC, uh, presidential leadership, scholarship interviews. You've always had a big stake in undergraduate education, too, in other words. Um, t- talk about this new role that you're in, um, in, in, Associate Dean of Undergraduate Studies. Isn't that the right title? Yeah, I think it's Senior Associate Dean. Senior Associate Dean. Yes, okay, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Um, for undergraduate affairs. It is... Oh, affairs. Affairs. Yeah. Okay, affairs. right, right. Yeah. yeah. For me, it's about student experience, and it's about placing our undergraduates at the core of what we do in our college. And so I love all of my graduate students, and I love working on graduate education, but I undergrads are just amazing. They are energetic, and they have... They are hopeful, and they have an eye towards uh, creating a like a, just an amazing future for this world. And so their hope and energy, I just I don't know, I just feed off of that. Yeah, yeah. So what do you all have in mind? I mean, what are you? Do you have new initiatives in FCFC that you're kind of thinking about? Yeah, I I love that you have to ask this. We are meeting all of our program directors next week because we're going to be talking about a couple of high-impact practices we want to enhance in the college. And it's everything from first-year learning experiences, so those seminars, field trips, and then all the way up through towards internships and our capstone experiences. And so it's those high-impact practices that I'm really uh, interested in for our college. Yeah, so high-impact practices – for listeners who are not inside the belly of uh, higher education, it's it's things. I mean, it's it's what it describes, but it's the things you're going to remember when you're 50. In other words, the things you're going to look back on, and and still they're going to hang around with you as, which is not going to be, you know, aside from the trauma test that you fail, but it's not going to be your classroom time. It's going to be that thing where you applied what you learned to something important that mattered to you, an experience that kind of elevated it. Yeah, absolutely. And we, I know, and feel and have read that 
faculty are, are critical in that, right? They're connecting with those students and making those experience ha- experiences happen for those students is really what's going to make this exceptional. Yeah, they don't, they don't happen by themselves, right? I mean, there's something that requires intentionality. It requires a, like a focus or something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, does FCFC have any particular, um, you know, new, new ideas about new kinds of things? You describe capstones. Is it just that you're going to systematize it across all four years so that, that there's like benchmark things that everyone is experiencing? Yeah, I, we have been in COVID for two years. Our capacity to take students into the field has been severely limited. And so we need to kind of... And it's pretty crucial in this field. Absolutely. The field work that, you know, part of, of all these disciplines, not just yours, obviously, but all the forestry disciplines, you got to be out there doing it. You do. You need to be built. There's a, a skill dimension and there's just a, a deep knowledge that happens. We do a really nice job in our college of connecting our students with professionals in the field. And so we want to make sure that we enhance those. And it starts the second a student walks into our college. And so that's day one. And so our first year seminars have been rolling and they've been doing awesome work. And we have an increased number of uh, students coming into our college. And so we want to make sure we're still providing opportunities that are actually exceptional given our increase in numbers as well. Well, congrats on that new position, and of course, we wish you the greatest of luck, and um, we hope you will still continue to mentor graduate students deep into your career, because that's our lane, but um, you know, you're doing an incredible job of that now. Are you ready for the quick hitters? We end every episode with our quick hitters. Yes. Okay. I, yes, I'm ready. Morning or night person? Morning. Winter or summer? Summer. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. See, I love that. Morning person, but sunset. Oh so. my God. Sunsets are like the best. Why? I don't know. It's like slightly romantic. It's probably why I like Jane Austen. It's like like overly romanticized somehow. Yeah. yeah. And sunrise, I don't know, bleaker somehow, straighter. Yeah. I don't, some people like the hope. I'm a sunset person too. Yeah. Some people like the hope of the morning sunrise, you know. Uh, Yellowstone or Glacier? Glacier. Fast on that. So why? Uh, it is just the most spectacular landscape in the entire United States, in my opinion. Okay. There you go. Your favorite Montana river? Oh, I think I love the Clark Fork. I've been studying things on the Clark Fork River for a decade now, and it just it's just home. It just feels like home. Okay, yeah. And it's, you know, it's funny. I've been here slightly longer than you, but we're newbies really, right? And you hear people talk about the Clark Fork even 30 years ago. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't have that romantic air, right? It, we've, we've cleaned it up so much, the dam removals and all of the, you know, it's 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 amazing how much more of a river town it's gotten, Missoula's gotten every year. And the Clark Fork's a crucial part of that, the cleanup of it and the, you know, the restoration. I know, and people just love it more. I mean, it's so cool to see everyone tubing down in the summer. Yeah. Maybe some recreation conflict there, but... A little bit, yeah. Just a touch. Yeah. Uh, they need to make sure they get their, um, you know, their 16-ounce cans crushed and put away in a nice bag. That's right. That's <laughs> it's not that right. hard. It's not that hard. Yeah. What's your favorite mountain range and why? Uh, the Pintlers. We have spent a lot of time up in the Pintlers. We have a house up at Georgetown Lake, and oh. we just love to play up there. All seasons? All seasons we go up. We ski in the winter at Disco. We hike around. We're getting ready to go camping up there this weekend. Fun. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, what's your shadow profession, the one you maybe entertained or flirted with or fantasize still? Oh, my God. This is so funny. I have like a million. Um, I don't know if it's a profession, but some days I wish – I mean, okay, park ranger. I always thought I'd be a park ranger, and I still think that's interesting. 
I sometimes wish I was just like a landscape person. Like I was working on a landscape. I was doing gardening. If I can spend days in gardens, I would feel really good about that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and again, talk about something you get to watch yeah. practically and the impact is immediate. You get to see it happen. That's great. What would your best friend say about you if they asked what you were like? Oh, my gosh. Um, I think <laughs> irreverent. Nothing sacred, right? I make fun of everyone equally. Um, sometimes it annoys my husband, but yeah. um, I know everything's on the table with me. Um, but I'm also fun. <laughs> so you lighten it up. It's not like you, there's no edge to it. No. What's the one piece of music you'd be willing to listen to for eternity? Um, I, right now, I'm totally into Taylor Swift. <laughs> one song, though. Oh, one song. Oh, gosh, I'm going to pick one. Um, Maybe Lover. Okay. I love that song. Uh, uh, I, I'm not even going to pick one. I'm going to pick multiple. Champagne Problems I'm totally into. I can listen to that on repeat. And then my daughter's really into 22. And it's really about being the age 22. And it might be one of my favorite ages I ever had for myself. Would it be possible for you to sing a chorus of any of those? Or would just oh, no way? Oh, my God. Absolutely not, Ashby. What about spoken word? A spoken word, a husky delivery of 22 i'm feeling 22 there we go that's hey that's that's all it took <laughs> what's the voice you hear in the back of your head when you go to sleep at night i hear my mom i'll always hear my mom's voice she's she, she's totally alive yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but she always uh is calming and says it'll be okay you'll get through this yeah boy we all need that we've needed it a lot over the last couple of years in right? particular yeah well, thank you so much for joining us on Confluence, Libby. Thank you. This has been really great. Thank you. If you like what you've heard, you've got Kate Lloyd to thank. She's a student in our MFA program in media arts. Her deft ear and keen editing touch have created the sonic landscape through which you're floating. We'd like to thank UM's College of Arts and Media for providing studio space and talent to support this production. Confluence is brought to you by the Graduate School of the University of Montana. Innovation, imagination, intellect to serve the state, the region, and the world. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google by searching Confluence University of Montana or click a link at the Confluence website, www.umt.edu grad. On the Telling Our Story tab, you'll find podcasts, videos, and other media that help us share with the world the groundbreaking research and creativity happening at the University of Montana. Enjoy the float. And say it, and say it, From and Pride say and Prejudice. <laughs>